we are, what were you going to say, Susan? Well, I, I wanted to make an announcement, but um, I did read this study about addiction, and it's very, very fascinating. Well, I think about all of my people that I know who go to 12-step groups for this or that yeah. or the other, mm -hmm. to be able to go with a group to say, this is my particular uh, difficulty, and this is my particular difficulty, and to be accepted as a person who, uh, like myself, has a certain thing, challenge in their life, but not, it's a group for those people. It's not a, it's, uh, uh, it's quite the opposite from being in a group where you feel, I have this guilty secret, nobody knows about me that I have this trouble. When you go to those groups, everybody knows about you, that, that you have that challenge, and everybody's working on it, and everybody has the compassionate umbrella of knowing how hard it is to really deal with any kind, anything that's become addictive, whether it's the addictive substance use or addictive use of money or addictive expression of sexuality or uh, addictive anger and wrath. Susan, what were you going to say? Um, I would like, Sandy Cohn and I are working on an event that's in San Rafael on February 8th, and maybe she could just make a quick announcement. Yes. It's, it's, Stand up and make a loud announcement. That's fine. wonderful and joyous that will open your heart. Promise. Yeah. Okay. I'm actually here to invite all of you to a really extraordinary evening on February 8th at the Smith uh, Rafael Theater. Um, our friend, and hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Does that work? Yeah. Hopefully soon, many of your friends as well um, is coming to show a film about her life uh, story that has everything to do with everything we talk about here, which is why I decided to come to invite you all. Um, this is uh, a film called Wheel of the World. The filmmaker is v Vigili Hamilton. Uh, she is an... Uh, Sylvia knows her? Yes. I do know her, yes. yes. Um, she is an artist, a poet, a muse, a um, musician, and most importantly, a peacemaker in the world. She had um, a dream many, many years ago, literally a, a dream at night. And unlike most of us that have dreams about what our uh, life vision is to help the world, she actually got up the next morning and did it. We had a long talk about that at, at some point. She had no money at the time, but she had a dream that she was to circle the world on the circumference, the latitude of the world, and live with various cultures um, and ask them three questions. And the questions were, who are we really, deeply? Um, what is the problem for us to live that way, fully? And what is the solution? And out of that came a period of time of interacting with all the villagers in these different uh, communities from Senegal to uh, Tibet to China, which was very interesting, to Japan, to India, all over the world, including the United States, and create a ritual piece of art with the community. Um, sometimes sculpting into mountains that were 20 feet high um, that's not the picture that's here. Going into caves, um, and this is one in a cave, creating a beautiful uh, goddess that the community 
had told her about part of their myths. Um, and uh, working with the community also if they said, for example, that what they needed was a community center or what they needed was a library or what they needed was the women to be able to have a co-op. So uh, Vigili, with no money and no plan, really just gathered her friends and took off and did this. And she did it for many, many years. And along the way, her, films, her friends filmed her. And this has become a film called Wheel of the World. She also has in Santa Fe a new center now called The World Wheel. She's gonna fly in from Santa Fe, so after the film is over, she will be there to speak. And then I am personally inviting you to uh, uh, join us afterwards for a meal at an Indian restaurant down the block. So I brought you all announcements, if you would like one. And um, if anyone wants to come to the meal, the only thing I request is that um, you let me know so I can let the restaurant know because we're already um, getting a lot of people. Uh, and also I urge you to buy your tickets online early because I'm concerned that the film may um, fill up. But at the restaurant, Vigili will be there as well. You can speak to her more. And it's just such a lovely thing. I had to bring it to our community. That's a great thing. Thank you. And I, I, I do know about Vigili, who I knew about through Edie Hartshorn for a long, a, a long time ago. And if I were not on retreat, I would go. So. And I'm still reflecting on who are we deeply? What is the problem that prevents us from being like that? Most deeply ourselves. Because I'm just thinking now all of a sudden I just heard those three phrases. I'm thinking, who are we deeply? What's the problem? And what will solve it? And I actually have three things that came up in my mind, so think about it. We said that about us. And I'm, and I'm not sure whether it's just a slick answer of mine because I tend to think that Dharma is a solution to everything and that deeply, well, no, I won't tell you my answer because you know, you're supposed to be thinking about it. But I have a few pieces of things that I want to mention to you and have you think about together with me so that uh, the things that have come up d during this last week and I've... I always save a little pile of what do I want to talk about on Wednesday. And uh, the first thing that came on my pile uh, since last week was a, a beautiful um, late New Year's card, really a beautiful card, I'll probably frame it, that says, um, it's a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it says, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. So I hear a lot of, hmm. You want to think on it or you want to tell me? What do you think? What comes to mind? Forgiveness is not a, an occasional act. It's a permanent attitude. Should we come back to it? You want to have time to reflect? Letting everything go, then you can forgive. That's 
Okay, all right. We'll come back and have some others. Not saying that's not. Not saying that's not. Just think about it a little bit. Forgiveness is a permanent attitude. And think of the things that come to mind. Well, let's do this other thing, because I can think we could really do a lot about that. Uh, and maybe I want to. But I wanted to bring up first, as I've been thinking about it quite a lot, uh, that um, I taught on, on Sunday for the family day. And uh, so this room was full of 150 parents and children from ages three and a half, I imagine, to 14. Uh, and, um, and I'm going to teach today at lunchtime uh, the people that are somewhere out on telephone lines uh, who are calling in about that course. And there was something that, uh, that um, I was thinking about that came about what are we really doing? Who are we really or is the Dharma the answer to everything? I'm not even saying it as well as I want, but here's what I want to say. I read this book. This is the Dharma text. I did not read a Jataka tale. I didn't read the story of the Buddha. I read the story of Ferdinand the Bull, which it was published in the year I was born. So how many people had people read them, Ferdinand the Bull, when they were young? How many people read it to your children when they were young? How many people's children are reading it to their children when they're young? It could be up there. Once upon a time in Spain, there was a little bull, and his name was Ferdinand. All the other bulls he lived with would run and jump and butt their heads around. You can see them all running and jumping, butting their heads. But... But, but not Ferdinand. He liked to just sit quietly and smell the flowers. So you see him there sitting quietly, smelling the flowers. He had a favorite spot out in the pasture under a cork tree. It was his favorite tree, and he would sit in its shade all day long and smell the flowers. Sometimes his mother, who was a cow, would worry about him. She was afraid he would be lonesome all by himself. Why don't you run and play with all the other little bulls and skip and butt your head, she would say. But Ferdinand would shake his head. I like it better here where I can just sit quietly and smell the flowers. I can tell when I miss a page because I know it. His mother saw that he was not lonesome, and because she was an understanding mother, even though she was a cow, she let him just sit there and be happy. As the years went by, Ferdinand grew and grew until he was big and strong. All the other bulls who had grown up with him in the same pasture, would fight each other all day. They would butt each other and stick each other with horns. 
what they wanted most of all was to be picked to go to the bullfights in Madrid. One day, but not Ferdinand. He still liked to just sit quietly under the cork tree, smelling the flowers. One day, five men came in very funny hats to pick the biggest, fastest, roughest bull to fight in the bullfights in Madrid. All the other bulls ran around snorting and butting, leaping and jumping, so the men would think that they were very, very, very strong and fierce and pick them. Ferdinand knew that they wouldn't pick him, and he didn't care. So he went out to his favorite cork tree and sat down. He didn't look where he was sitting. And instead of sitting on the nice cool grass in the shade, he sat on a, bumble on a bumblebee. Well, if you were a bumblebee and a bull sat on you, what would you do? You would sting him. And that's what, just what this bee did. Wow, did it hurt. Ferdinand jumped up with a snort. He ran around puffing and snorting, butting and pawing the ground as if he were crazy. The five men saw him. And they all shouted with joy. Here was the largest, fiercest bull of all, just the one to take to the bullfight in Madrid. So they took him away to the bullfight in a cart. See a picture of him sitting in the cart. Mm. I'll pass it around so you can see the pictures. What a day it was. Flags were flying, bands were playing, and all the lovely ladies had flowers in their hair. They had a parade into the bullring. First came the banderilleros with long, sharp pins with ribbons on them to stick in the bull and make him mad. Then came the picadores, who rode skinny horses, and they had long spears to stick in the bull and make him madder. And then came the matador, the proudest of all. He thought he was very handsome and bowed to the ladies, he had a red cape and a sword and was supposed to stick the bull last of all. Then came the bull, and you know who that was, don't you? Ferdinand. Ferdinand. They called him Ferdinand the Fierce, and all the banderilleros were afraid of him, and the picadores were afraid of him, and the matador was scared stiff. <laughs> Ferdinand ran to the middle of the ring, and everyone shouted and clapped because they thought he was going to fight fiercely and butt and snort and stick his horns around. But... <laughs> but not Ferdinand. When he got to the middle of the ring, he saw the flowers in the lovely lady's hair, and he just sat down, quiet.
quietly and smelled. And he wouldn't fight and be fierce no matter what they did. He just sat and smelled. And the banderilleros were very mad and the picadores were very madder. And the matador was so mad he cried because he couldn't show off with his cape and his sword. So they had to take Ferdinand home. And for all I know, he is sitting there still under his favorite cork tree, smelling the flowers just quietly. He is very happy. So, <laughs> we have applause, actually, for him. So, let's talk about why does that story make you happy? Why did it make the 150 parents and children happy? Let's start from that. Why is that, why is that a great story? That's now 78 years old, that story, because it was born in 1936. So, yeah. Because he survived. He survived, in spite of the fact that he was, in, yeah, okay. He survived. And he stayed true to his nature. He stayed, this is me. <laughs> and? Totally comfortable being different. He's totally comfortable being different. There you go, Alexandra, there you go. It had a happy ending. It had a happy ending. He was nonviolent and he won. So, I mean, we think about Gandhi was nonviolent and he won, but Ferdinand, he was nonviolent and he won. What else? Yeah. Um, he finds joy in just simple pleasures, like sitting under a tree and smelling the flowers. He finds joy in simple pleasures, like sitting under a tree, smelling the flowers. What else? It's complicated, Ferdinand, yeah. His mother worried about him, isn't it? So we know that mothers worry about their offspring, but she was a, what did they say? She was a very understanding mother. That's the word they used. And somebody else said the understanding was that this child is different. This one doesn't run and jump and snort. And, uh, that's a big understanding. My child is atypical. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you look at it in that, in that kind of way, and you know that he stuck to his principles, his principles that he's going to smell the flowers, and even in the bull ring, he smelled the flowers. Yeah. He was a different bull, but he was very happy and teaching the child that they don't have to embrace how other you know people around them behave. Uh-huh. Is is, a, is an okay thing. It's a fabulous thing. Think about it in a schoolyard, people beating each other up. You're going to sit mm-hmm. quietly. And not being frightened into behaving in a certain way because other people are expecting it of you. Yeah. You know, just, I mean, that is being true to one's nature. Yeah, and knowing it and not yeah. being embarrassed about it. Yeah. And he had a practice of smelling the flowers that stood him in good stead when he got to the bull ring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, he had been practicing his whole life. You know, you sit down and you smell the flowers. That's what you do. His mind stayed steady. And it actually saved his life. And it, saved, and it saved his life. Had he run away or, you know, yeah? He had a feminine side. 
Yeah, the feminine side. <laughs> That's okay. I'll, you know, I'll go with that. Uh, he was without fear or worry. He was without fear and worry. Because if he had been frightened and worried, he wouldn't have sat down and smelled. You know, he'd been preoccupied with the fear and worry. It's about permission to be who you are. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to look forward to listening to this tape tomorrow because I'm going to copy down all these things because I've, I've really been thinking not only about what are all the Dharma lessons in it, but that hearing all these, these are even way more than what I had thought up. You had any more? I missed a few people. Go. No, 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 I, I, I'm very happy that you added that because I think he definitely wasn't stupid. I'm, I, I, I want to hear over here and I want to say why I thought actually he actually understood in a wise way. What? Yes. Well, and still life happened to him. Still he was stung by a bee. Yeah. And so I thought of forgiveness in the sense of you can't have any investment because even if you're just smelling the flowers, mm -hmm. life may happen and you still have to come back into the moment and go into the bull ring. That's right. That is right. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Well, there was some recognition, and they didn't kill him. Instead, they let him go home. Yeah. So there was recognition of the power of... So he was actually turned out to be quite powerful. Exactly. Mm. Brought him home. Even though the bee stung him, the bee wasn't bad because any bee would do that. Yeah. So it said, doesn't have any bad guys, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he wasn't afraid of his anger. <laughs> he wasn't afraid of, no. He wasn't angry. He wasn't angry. He just was in pain from getting it. He was in pain, right, exactly. And he was non-judgmental. And I think that answers the question about how you can be in a state of forgiveness all the time. See, that's, well, keep that in mind also, Lynn. Because if you you have to have a judgment, this was wrong, or the judgment, this shouldn't have happened. Yeah. It did happen. Yeah. So if you have a judgment, this shouldn't have happened, then there'll always be a right or a wrong. If you don't have a judgment about this shouldn't have happened, it did happen. This is a world where, in some places, they even still have bullfights, they have bulls, and they have bees, and this sometimes happens. Yeah. smelling the flowers, which is nature. He sat under a cork tree, which is nature. He got stung by a bee and had a natural response to go crazy. Yeah. When he came to the bull ring, which isn't a natural thing, mm -hmm. he didn't respond. That's a very interesting piece on that. I wonder if anybody ever did such a big exegesis on Ferdinand. <laughs> Probably. What were you going to say? He, he was like the epitome of um, equanimity. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, what's your name? Wendy. Wendy? Well, I was going to say, actually, coming back on He Was Wise, because you could think to yourself, I, I, made, I, made a, I, made, I was working yesterday, I'm making a little list out of this. I said, um, this is really a quintessential Dharma story, and, and it's, an, uh, it's a presentation 
I think, of the Four Noble Truths, that uh, life is challenging for everybody. Here, Ferdinand is going along, having a nice, pleasant life, everything good, and then circumstances change. So if you think about the four, first of the Four Noble Truths, things are always changing. Things change. Circumstances uh, become difficult. Uh, and they become challenging. When circumstances change, and all of a sudden, he's taken away to fight a bull. He didn't mean that to happen. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering, not even pain, but the cause of suffering is an imperative in the mind that things have to be different. So you can assume that if he's taken off to go to the bull, they, they, he passes around, they show him riding in a little small ox cart. He does not have a happy face, you know. It's not a cheerful situation. He's getting trundled over some mountains to go to a bull ring, but he's just sitting there. So he, is, he is, probably has an unpleasant situation that he is not making into suffering by snorting and carrying on and breaking up the carriage or fighting, just sitting there. So it's unpleasant, but he doesn't protest. He gets to the bull ring. Against the third noble truth is peace is possible. Yes, to the bullring, everybody is uh, provoking and sticking and picking, and he chooses peace. He sits down and smells flowers. He makes a choice. He chooses to not. I, it came in my mind as I was thinking about this yesterday about the the slogan that I think dates back even to the 1960s where somebody said, what if they gave a war and nobody came? Yeah. You know, that the idea that uh, you don't have to be engaged, yeah? Um, the author also draws attention to the bullfight, the, the matador who, who has such a strong, angry, upset reaction in contrast, you know, because he's not getting what he wants. That's exactly, Phyllis, I hadn't thought about that. Like, Ferdinand did not get what he wanted. He did not want to be uprooted from his tree and pushed in a cart and taken off to Madrid. But he just does it because it's happening. It's what's happening. On the other hand, the matador, who is so distressed that he doesn't get to show off with his cape and his sword, said he was so mad he cried. So that he made his pain and disappointment into suffering. I don't know, maybe it's a macho bull thing. It's a lot of bull. What, Susan? Also, the ability to see something good in every situation. I mean, he's going along, he sees the flowers in the women's head. And he doesn't say, you know, I'm in this awful situation. He sees flowers, you know, he sees the good in the situation. He's not confused by the distress of the situation. But somebody said, if you had unshakable calm, so, okay, so I hope this is not sort of Buddhist blasphemy or something, but if you think about the quintessential image of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, this is a story, so I actually like it, I, I don't suppose it, it's a, it sounds, okay, Maybe it actually happened, but I always see it as a metaphoric version. Fairy tales are metaphoric versions. It is said that the Buddha, having learned how to meditate over a period of years and learning how to 
really uh, um, organize its mind so that it stayed completely filled with equanimity and was therefore able on behalf of the equanimity to radiate goodwill out from him, sat down under a tree in Bodh Gaya and said, putting his hand on the floor next to him, I'm not getting up until I'm completely enlightened, is what it says. He said, I have a right to be here. I love that. You know, sometimes when I'm sitting and I don't, you know, something's storming in my mind, or I say, ah, it wasn't a good time to sit. I should get up now. I should do something else. I put, like, my hands on the ground, and I don't think that's hubris to say I'm the Buddha. It's like, I'm not the Buddha. I'm Sylvia Borstein, putting my fingers on the ground. But I like the idea of saying... I have a right to be here with a mind that cooperates. That's part of my birthright as a human being. I have a right to be here, and I'm not getting up till I'm enlightened. So I don't get up enlightened most of the time, but at least <laughs> most of the time I get up somewhat at ease with whatever was causing me to think I'm out of here. I'm going to stand up and finish. So that's what he did in the story. He puts his hand, he says, I'm not leaving until I'm enlightened. And then, presumably, according to the story, all the forces that, that um, uh, come together, all the forces that disturb the mind, a human's mind, forces of um, anger, forces of lust, forces of confusion, come and assail him. And you see them in this drawing you see them really actually galloping in on horses, the armies of Mara, they're called. And the, and the Buddha in the classic story says, I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. I love that. I think it's a fairy tale, but I love that. I see your, arm, your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. It's also because I'm thinking so much these days about the the difference between the opposite of afraid is feeling safe. And I think when we feel safe, then we can see clearly, what should I do now? So everything's assailing. What is he doing? He's sitting quietly, the Buddha. And the, uh, lust, the, uh, the uh, powers of lust come and assail him. So in, the, uh, in classic stories, there are erotic visions which you think would you know, sort of disturb the mind if you suddenly had erotic thoughts and desires, but not if you had such grand equanimity that all those, uh, all those passions and lusts, angers and desires and, and uh, uh, needs to conquer or whatever you had, would not be able to make any headway if you were unconquerable, if you just sat down. And it's interesting. Now I just hadn't realized it till the second... It says that in, the, in that story that his equanimity was so profound that he was able to radiate this tremendous uh, force of loving kindness that came out from his body and surrounded him. And I probably read that definition several decades ago, that vision around the time that Colgate toothpaste was... Did you remember at that time... They were saying Colgate toothpaste puts an invisible shield around your... So this is the first time, and I'm sure in the history of Dharma talks, that someone has brought up Colgate toothpaste. But they had a, a really a picture of an invisible shield that coated your... that came around your teeth and nothing would come by. And so he could meditate so hard that the force of the loving kindness that came out from his body 
caused all those spears and arrows of, and pulls of the lusts and the angers that came towards him that would provoke him when they came into contact with this unshakable shield of equanimity and loving kindness were transformed into flowers, mm -hmm. the swords and the, and the arrows, and they fell on the floor all around him, mm -hmm. all the way, way deep, and they covered the whole earth, was covered with flowers mm -hmm. so deep from all the swords of anger and weapons of confusion. So there are so many things that confuse the mind. I think that there's a way of making it all quite easy and saying one of the reasons for meditating, oh, I'm so glad I'm telling you this because I'm going to be on the phone in an hour, and the, and the discussion is why do we meditate? There are so many things that confuse the mind. And an untrained mind is so easily confused. And in the confusion, we do all kinds of things that make our situations worse. So there's a way of talking about meditation practice magically or like supernaturally. I think it's a pretty big magic to be able to take a regular person in a complicated world and say, okay, let's just make you so filled with the peace that comes from, um, what is it called, unshakable uh, the Buddha's teaching on impartial kindness is another name for the Metta Sutta. Let's so empower ourselves with impartial kindness coming out from us in all directions for everybody that actually none of those things that confuse the mind would confuse it because they would be turned into flowers, so to speak. The Tibetan practitioners, uh, the Tibetan Buddhism has a lovely phrase. They say, all hindrances, which means all those forces, aff afflictive mind forces that hinder clear seeing, all hindrances are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. I love that. My actually image in my mind is, of course, the mind is not in my head. It's, who knows where the mind is? There's a, I, I think there is a mind, and it's all over the place, and we're all connecting to it in some way, or manifesting it. No, not connecting to it, manifesting it. We are all manifestations of, on some level, consciousness unfolding. Do I think that? I think so. <laughs> That's a pretty big I believe statement, so I'll think about that. I don't usually like... I don't usually find myself saying that. But anyway, but to be able to think that really, I, I, I do believe that there is no more trustworthy um, refuge than one's own good heart. And that, in fact, we provide ourselves with um, a refuge by practicing a practice that makes our mind so steady that it is able to stay, if not unshakably, pretty unshakably, in a state of clear understanding about how suffering arises and its causes and the possible end of it to inspire a desire to radiate nothing but loving kindness out of compassion. I like what I just said. I think that was a very good way. 
That was a good sentence. I don't usually say things so clearly. That was good. I'm going to honestly listen to this tomorrow. Uh, (laughs) Now I need somebody who's a transcriber who'll listen to it and write it down. That'd be great. But I think that's actually true. That's all the stories that we know about people who uh, die in the, without getting frightened. It's just another moment. You know, okay, here are my friends to be with me. I am part of this big, evolving, amazing thing called consciousness and birth and rebirth in it of new things, new things, new things, new things, bringing traces of the old and genes of the old and who knows what of the old. And it all arises and passes away, including me. And may it be that at my time there are people who are there with me to help me make that trip comfortably at the very end. But the idea that you could really rest in so much equanimity, not even before, at the end, but before the end, that you could really fix in your mind that, it, that, that there'd be no negativity in it. Deepa Ma was a woman that I met she's dead now, uh, who was the teacher of Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield as well, to to some degree, who was a Bengali woman with an extraordinary uh, <clears throat> capacity for very deep understanding and meditation. And she had a, a, you know, un, not a, a life that would lead to that. She had an ordinary Bengali housewife with children and a husband. And in one particular year, the husband died, one of her children died. She was tremendously bereft, uh, really beside herself, took up meditation because someone said you should find a teacher because you wasn't at all well, and developed such tremendous skill with her meditation that she became a teacher of many of my teachers and um, somebody asked, asked her, this book about her in the, in the um, uh, bookstore, someone once asked her, what's in your mind at any time? And she said, um, not so much. She said there's a lot of concentration, a lot of peacefulness, and otherwise loving kindness. So I thought, ah, I like that. I'd like to have a mind that was like that. I can work on that. And then just not so long ago, I was thinking about the line from a loving kindness chant, uh, may I be free of enmity and danger, which we used to say as metta students, loving kindness students, 30 years ago. And then it fell out of favor as a, as a, um, as a phrase, it's more close to what's in the uh, scripture recommendations. But it, people thought correctly that it's a little bit arcane in its language. So people prefer to say, may I be safe. Um, I sometimes teach it that way, may I feel safe. But I really, I learned it the other way, may I be free of danger. And now may I be free of enmity and danger. And I would like to be free of enmity and danger. That's become my favorite metaphrase. Because I think 
it would be the same as saying a much longer phrase like, may my mind dwell in such ongoing peacefulness that at any moment I would have wisdom available to me that reminded me that everybody doing anything is just doing the only thing they could possibly doing. <laughs> and that being mad at them doesn't change them. It pollutes my mind space and it's not helpful to anybody. Having compassion for them doesn't pollute my mind space and maybe allows me to help them. And that seems suddenly so clear to me. Why was I thinking of something else? I, I, I'm, I'm sure there are other ways to talk about the point of practice. I mean, I could tell you the point of practice is to live happily. You know, I was in um, Molly Stone's last night buying some dinner, and I see they have wonderful magazines on the go-out of Molly Stone's. You know, they're really magazines I've never heard of the, on everything from every possible niche interest. And there's a magazine called Live, Live Happily. So I thought, oh, you know, that's a good magazine. I thought maybe it was a Dharma magazine. And I, I looked at it. I was going to buy it and bring it to class today. But I looked at it, and it's kind of a Dharma magazine. It's also, uh, you know, it's also a magazine that sells lots of things about having to do with having a fun time and where to go on holiday and all of that. Uh, but I, that, um, that particular title of the magazine, maybe I'll go back, maybe I'll buy it. Maybe the particular title, Live Happily, or maybe it's called Living Happily. Anyway, I'll go back and look. Um, there was a uh, uh, consciousness teacher early in the 20th century whose name was Maya Baba in the yogic tradition. Did you hear about him? Yes. Do you remember what he used to say? Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. And there was big posters of him. He had a big mustache. You know, he was a good, you know, imposing-looking man with a big mustache. And it said, "Don't worry, be happy." And I remember seeing that it, it was there when I started thirty-five years ago, at least thirty-five, forty, in the sixties. Yeah, and uh, I thought, it you know, it's for a person who had as their principal hindrance incessant worrying. You know, it, it seemed like there wasn't enough information to go on. You know? <laughs> not enough, not enough. I, I, I don't mean to say anything bad on him because I think it's a great, I think it's a great instruction. But it didn't give you any instructions about how to do that. You know, that, that be too, do you know that there's an old cartoon that's been going around for years uh, where you see two, it's a famous cartoon, two men in a um, science laboratory with a big blackboard, uh, all covered with formulas and formulas and and numbers and arrows and square roots and all all these tremendous geometric and mathematics things and with arrows. And there's one arrow pointing and it says, and here a miracle happens. And the caption of the whole cartoon is, I think you have to be a little bit more specific in point A, you know, while we're here. So, but here a miracle happens. But it's not, a, you know, it's not a miracle. In between 
the injunction, don't worry, be happy, and, how, and not worrying and being happy. Yeah, it has to be a certain change in the neurology of the brain and a certain change in understanding. And really, the, really on, uh, of every piece of that, how can you not worry? I have friends who don't worry. I had friends who didn't worry. They would be concerned about things in their family situation that was complicated, were complicated. And I remember saying, Alta, how come you're not worrying about this? And she'd say, well, it, I, you know, I am concerned about it. She said, but, you know, I've done everything I have could yeah. to help the situation. What's the point of worrying? So that's brilliant, except if you're a habitual worrier, that makes you feel more like a fool because there is no point to worrying. Concern is reasonable, but worrying is, a, is an obsessive habit of the mind. So, but to be able to say, don't worry, be happy, doesn't mean don't have an active life, don't do things in the world, don't make the best effort to make this the best possible world. It says you do what you can. You do everything that you can, and then you, I guess the being happy then, wouldn't it, come from knowing that you had done the best you could. That um, there's a phrase that, that comes from the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. Mm -hmm. You know, that, I, that we tr tr all we can do is try very hard to act in a way that feels right in us. You know, so, it's so interesting because everything needs a little uh, uh, explanation. One of the things I was trying to um, explain, when was this? Maybe, maybe it was in preparing for this thing at lunchtime. One of the things I was preparing to explain is why you got to be a nicer person, uh, kinder, more thoughtful, when you had done a practice of training the mind. Because it's, it's now validated by uh, empirical scores. People do psychology testing on um, uh, subjects that have before they go on a three-month retreat and after the three-month retreat. And they score higher on the empathy scale. They score higher on the morality scale. They, they, it, something changes in them. And my own guess, I don't know, nobody told me this, I'm making it up, is that as your mind becomes steadier and less confused and less held hostage by your own needs and confusions, you get to see that, that there really is suffering. The dukkha of the first noble truth is true. Not the suffering of floods and famines, that's a lot of pain in the world, but the, really the suffering of uh, everybody's mind making their life more complicated than it needs to be. Everybody carrying on with uh, ideas and opinions that they've learned or been born with or taught that they'd have to unlearn in order to relax and live with everybody else in the world. That. Um, Really, it's actually out of compassion for the world. You say, look at people hurting themselves so much. Um, I'm trying to think of an example that wouldn't be terribly 
ghastly, like um, the wars that people do. Uh, maybe you don't have to. Uh, I went to a, um, I went to Marin Academy yesterday to hear some senior speeches in Marin Academy. All of the seniors need to give a 10-minute speech in their senior year, 10 to 15 minutes. And the whole school comes into the gymnasium once a week, and they have three more of these speeches. So among the three speakers yesterday was one of my grandsons, so I definitely went. And talking to the three people before, people get nervous, you know? And I think it, maybe... Uh, maybe it's, we're so worried about doing well. What if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? Uh, what could we possibly have a world where everybody you know, isn't so worried about what will people think? I mean, you have to have uh, an awareness of what's appropriate, but I don't know. Maybe people are strung differently. How many people here do not like talking to groups? How many people do? <laughs> depends on the group, depends on the subject. Okay, could I talk to this group for one minute, one second? One, what's happening to me right now and being here this morning? I, I wasn't going to come this morning because I've been working on something very difficult uh, at home family thing has been giving me a lot of difficulty, and I thought, I'm not, I, I don't really have the time to come here, and um, I, I have to sit home and work on this stuff, that's all. And I got up, and I don't, I don't know why, I just said, I'm going, I'm going, yeah, whatever it is, I'll do it later, but I'm going to hear this and in I came. And I've solved the problem. <laughs> While sitting here, there were two particular aspects that have been really bothering me, and I, I hadn't known how I was going to get around them. And it became as clear as could be while, while we were sitting. And I thought, that's so easy. <laughs> Why didn't I think of it? Ah, exactly there, Roberta. Stop. I didn't mean to jump on you, except I did mean to jump on you because you didn't think of it because there's, there's different ways that we think, particularly when we have a problem. A lot of times when you have a problem, you've got to think, how am I going to do it? 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 And you don't get it. <laughs> then you say, I give up. I don't know how to do it. Ah, there. So the thing is, we, we think, uh, and particularly when something has to be solved, and if we could have solved it by linear thinking, we would have already solved it. Mm -hmm. So we need a fresh look at it, an intuitive look at it. And so you don't come here and say, okay, I'm having an intuitive look. But you are having an intuitive look because you, don't, you have not planned what your thoughts are going to think about. We sat for almost a half hour, and now we're talking. And we're laughing, and the mind relaxes. And all of a sudden, ah, there it is. It's an amazing thing. People, I'm going to give you, an, uh, I'm going to make a lesson out of that. When you sit down to meditate in your home, uh, which I hope you do uh, on some regular basis, it's actually good for you. 
I get up every morning and I sit. And sometimes I sit quite long, sometimes I don't sit so long, but I do sit every morning. And even if I'm coming here in the morning, I come, I, all the better to sit there for a while. Uh, and when there's something that's on my mind and I sit down and I think, oh, I could figure this out now, I say to myself, really, specifically, put it aside. Don't do that. I'm putting aside this problem, and I say to myself, may the best new idea I've ever had about this particular problem arise for me in this next half hour. I'm giving it over to get figured out. And then I feel my body, and I breathe, and I don't figure it out. And I, I would say... A lot of the lot of the time, as I'm sitting, ding, it rings like the computer went the other way through a back room, and it's a ding. Do this, do that, do this. It often happens. It means it's a moment of the mind being freed to create. Often on retreats, when people are doing a lot of meditation, they're sitting and they come and see me, and they say it's the strangest thing. I was sitting, minding my own business, and all of a sudden. A haiku wrote itself in my mind. I wasn't doing it. It just did. So some part of you wrote the haiku, but it was able to write the haiku because you're not pushing it to do it. And it just put a bunch of words together in a new way. I'm sure that people write music that way, that they don't plunk it out at the piano, that they are walking along and they hear da-da-da-da or something like that. And they figure out that's a catchy beginning, you know. That uh, I'll do something with that, but you can't. Uh, you, you really you have to hear it. Uh, or you, 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 you're, people say, you know, I was sitting there on the on the retreat, and I was not thinking about. Or I, I had the thought, day after tomorrow I go home, but I put that out of my mind. And a few minutes later, ding. I had a vision in my mind of how all the furniture in my living room could get rearranged so it would be uh, uh, more attractive and easier to walk through. But maybe that was a question in your mind that you hadn't even consciously brought to mind, that your mind, in a relaxed state, open to creativity, now did for you. So you don't know. Sometimes my teachers used to say to me, when you sit, even without a, you know, a problem like what should I do about this or my living room or what, just to say, as you, if I were to come and tell my teachers, you know, I'm sitting in my mind's pretty relaxed. I'm just sitting there and I'm just comfortable and pretty relaxed. They said, why don't you um, say something to yourself like, may the deepest insight into the nature of arising and passing away impermanence arise for me. That's really supposed to be the key of noticing the whole way that the mind works. Or why doesn't, may the deepest understanding of suffering arise in my mind as I sit here. Said, he said, but just make that kind of directing the attention. Like if, if if that insight arises, I'm on the lookout for it, but not being on the lookout, then just sit there. And sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes, ta-da, there it is. Does that seem attractive to you? So I'm thinking I had something else that I wanted us to talk about. 
Ah. This is the last thing we have five minutes. Ferdinand was good, wasn't it? That was a really interesting thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna write something about Ferdinand because there were way more Dharma pieces in that Ferdinand. I'm gonna listen to this. Nobody volunteered as a stenographer. Nobody knows how to do that. Well, maybe some people do, and maybe just this is I, I just was thinking about this and I, it, it was kind of like I wanted to put it in the same day that I wrote forgiveness is a permanent attitude. Um, I, I thought of that, the forgiveness is a permanent attitude being uh, in some way a wisdom expression about in the end, everything passes. In the end, it's a really an exact, it's a permutation of um, it's a permutation of uh, uh, things passing. That everything passes. Youth passes. You pick up any kind of a um, a magazine, you can look younger. And it, if you look on the uh, women's magazine, look younger in five days. Look younger in six months. Look younger. By and, and of course, in, in, unless they're the twelve-year-old magazines, you know, dress sophisticated. So we're always up younger and older, and make yourself different. But we're always losing something. So that 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 idea of forgiveness is just really touching to me. To not to have a problem with just to be able to say that's how it is, you know. I see, I particularly, I notice all those ads where it says, see this woman, she's 80, but over here, you see, she smeared this cream and now she looks 50. And I, you know, I look at that and I say, oh, how much is that bottle of cream? You know, I don't immediately write it off, you know, like I look at it and then I say, wait a minute, you know, if they really had that cream, you know, they, it wouldn't be thirty nine ninety five Anyway, but you get, you get caught with it. Then I look at myself and I say, "This is what it's supposed to look like." Yeah. That's it, yeah. you know. That and and I, it has to be all right with me because that's what it is. It has to be all right with me, whatever we are, mm -hmm. and however it is. So, uh, oh, earlier on when we said about what's the wisdom in, uh, you know, things change. It's not what we want. Ferdinand's getting carted off. Anything happens that we didn't want. My grandfather used to take a big breath in, and he'd say, what are you going to do? That's life. <laughs> I wonder if that's not the whole wisdom of the Buddha. What are you going to do? That's life. Things happen. Things happen. We don't get a choice. Time marches on. Things happen. Everything depends on wisdom. Things are the way they are because of myriad causes. Nothing exists except change. There's no, nothing to hold on to because it's going to change. What I matter, what I do matters, but I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge. I can do everything right, and I'm not in charge. That happens all the time. And how to know that? I was thinking about how do you keep the bigger picture in mind, and I was thinking about my friend Tamara. I talk about her from time to time. Um, my friend Tamara Engel was one of the founders of New York Insight. She
she moved to Florida a couple of years before she died with her partner. And uh, they were living in Florida, and she developed cancer and subsequently died from her cancer. While she was sick, we were in very close contact all the time. But during the time that she was quite sick and her cancer had come back and was, she was having new chemo, uh, she called me one day and left a message and, because there was a hurricane coming towards Florida. And uh, she said, uh, Sylvia, this is tomorrow. I, um, I, I have some news for you. And I thought, oh, she's going to give me news about that her, her cancer is getting better. She said, the hurricane is coming towards where I am. So I have friends who live an hour inland, and I have a lot of glass on my house. So I'm going there now. So if you try calling me in the next two days, you can find me. Don't worry about me. I'm OK. I'm at a friend's house. I'll call you when I get home. So of course, I'm watching the, uh, the hurricane and on the uh, weather channel, and I'm thinking about it. <coughs> I talk about, and then three days later, when she was back home, she called me. And I said, how was it? She said, well, it was remarkable, you know? All, they had a lot of friends come to be with them because they had a fairly protected house. She said, we were all sitting in the living room in the middle of the night because that's when the eye of the hurricane came through. And we were all sitting, and all the electricity went off. So we are all sitting in our pajamas, kind of huddled up on the sofas and the chairs right next to each other. And you can hear the storm, and you can hear when the eye is there because it gets quiet. And she said, and we were, you know, praying for each other and praying for the people in the houses around us, even though that we didn't know who was there, and praying for the whole Florida, may all beings be safe, may they be happy, may be the weather this storm. I said, uh, uh, how were you feeling about your cancer when you were gone? She said, you know, I forgot about my cancer while I was there. She said, the thing was, that cancer or no cancer, we were all the same imperiled. You know, and in a way, that's always true. That's always true. In any particular group, we're all the same imperiled. We say, here are some people, they're, they're dealing with a, uh, this kind of dangerous illness and that kind of dangerous illness. But we're all, in a way, imperiled. If we had a tornado right here, we'd be the same imperiled. We're all human beings. We are all going to come to the same end. That's not dreary. That's just true. But um, I actually think you know, that we shouldn't keep it a secret from ourselves. The more we know it, the more excited I am about living every moment. Someone said to me the other day, she said, I was, I was thinking as I was sitting, I was having this thought that I'm very excited about this event that's coming up. Next Saturday, I keep thinking about it. It's going to be a very exciting day. And then she said, I thought to myself, why don't I plan for today to be a very exciting day? <laughs> you know, I thought to myself, that's brilliant. Because you can't have Saturday now. You can only have now now. Yeah. This all sounds so normal. It doesn't sound like... So I'll be glad to be here next week because I'll be on retreat. How weird. I t uh, I'll, be, I'll be down here because Barbara will come to play cello. Bring a friend if you want. Feel free to bring friends. Barbara's an extraordinary cellist, and she's going to play the Bach cello suite, which is an amazing thing. Bring friends. It's Spirit Rock's gift to the world. Just bring them. It's going to be videoed because it's going to go on the um, Symphony website, maybe our website as well. 
even if you don't want to show up on a video, there's a person, place, there's a spot where those kind of people can sit. But why not be shown in a video listening to a cellist? What about that? <laughs> Could be bad, but anyway. Anyway, Barbara will be here. She'll talk about tuning that instrument. I'll talk about tuning the brain. And I will have been on retreat for four days, so maybe I'll levitate in. Or... <laughs> actually, actually, that's not what I'm trying to do on this retreat, but I, I told Barbara, do call. If I'm one minute late from being here at 8.30, come up and find me. Maybe I forgot what day it was. So. <laughs> I don't think that'll happen. Huh? Yeah. On the bulletin board of Whole Foods. Wow. That's we should really alert the. Uh, that's great. We should really alert the uh, personnel here to put out more chairs. Fantastic. Come early, too, because we're going to start at 9, really. The. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.